that is a core part of their theory of change, that it is a broader ecosystem of actors that are influencing people and influencing how voters think about the Democratic Party. And therefore, we can't just be thinking in terms of this word or this word or this ad or this ad, but we need to be thinking holistically about what we stand for as a party and how we communicate that to voters. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Ali Mortel, research lead at Blue Rose Research, which is a project of Open Labs that's designed to help campaigns make higher quality strategic decisions by democratizing access to accurate measurement. Leaders in Blue Rose and Open Labs happen to include two former guests on the show, Aaron Strauss, who used to run the Analyst Institute, and David Shore, who used to be head of political data science at Civis Labs. Allie has an excellent story about how she came to join in this space, including more than three years at Blue Labs and her work as Bernie Sanders' Deputy National Analytics Director in 2020. If you're interested in developments around message testing in progressive politics, you'll want to listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Ali Mortel with Blue Rose Research. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Allie, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, absolutely. Hello, my name is Ali Mortel, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. I am currently a research lead at Blue Rose Research, which is a shop that specializes in quantifying public opinion, both understanding where public opinion is at and also studying how to change it. I've been working in the democratic analytics space since the 2016 cycle, and I've been working in the broader democratic space for about a decade now, and I'm based in Washington, D.C. Yeah, you've actually had what feels to me like a very quick rise through the ranks, but I guess it's probably been a lot of time on your end and a good proportion of your life. Tell me a little bit about how you grew up and what your route was to college and interest in political communication. Yeah. If we're going back to the pre-college days, I grew up in Northwest New Jersey. I don't think a lot of people realize that New Jersey has like rural, more conservative areas, but we do. I'm from Sussex County and my hometown for about four years was just completely covered in, in Trump signs. Do you understand why those people had Trump signs, why they found him so attractive? Because, I mean, I think it's important to understand these are our countrymen and women and our neighbors in many cases. And yet 
I'm guessing just from where you work and your use of pronouns and various things like that, there's a gulf here and you're a student of public opinion. You're saying you grew up in an area with that kind of complexity. Tell me a little about it. Yeah. Before the Trump years, I would say that people on average were, uh, you know, generally politically apathetic, but when and where it did come up, people definitely skewed to the right culturally. I remember in high school during the Obama years, getting in fights with people about, you know, uh, people were trying to say, oh, Obama, he's a Kenyan terrorist who's going to destroy our country. And so while there was kind of an undercurrent of traditional Republican values, I think that in that part of New Jersey where I grew up, there was more of like a Ron Paul, Andrew Yang almost kind of streak where a lot of the people, you know, even if they were okay with abortion um, and and not super religious necessarily, I think they kind of styled themselves as libertarians where they just said, you know, I don't want the, the government telling me what to do. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. There was a, a sense of independence that I think led to a number of people gravitating towards republicanism because that was really the Republican talking point was, we don't want the government interfering. Democrats believe in taxes and interference in your life. I don't want to say that there was overt racism. I think that there was a degree of, you know, cultural ignorance. I definitely heard a number of different racial slurs of, of different levels of offense growing up, not because I think that, you know, everyone was trying to, or anyone was trying to wish harm on another person, I think that there was just an element of ignorance. I remember, you know, I was one of the only Jewish kids in my school system. And in middle school, there was a phase where the kids in my class were jokingly referring to each other as like offensive terms for Jewish people, not the most offensive terms, but like stupid things like Jew bagel or I don't know, something like that. There was a lot of ignorance and low information. And that created a scenario where you combine low information and lack of an interest in education with these cultural undertones of, you know, the Republicans are the party of masculinity and independence. It allowed a lot of, especially the, the guys that I grew up with, to be drawn to that party to begin with. But I saw a, a difference when Trump came into power. You know, it went from people making jokes on Facebook and online about, you know, oh, liberals are so stupid to watching some of these same people start quoting essentially fascistic talking points. So there was kind of a transformation during the Trump years. I think that my hometown is a good example of an area that was already kind of a low information, politically apathetic Republican area that Trump really successfully tapped into culturally, um, not necessarily through any one particular policy per se. An important thing to note for cultural context is I'm referencing really not the adults that I grew up around, but more like the people my age that I grew up with. In my hometown, it was not considered cool to be smart. I was always working to get A's on everything. I, I really cared a lot about my schoolwork and I would have to hide it from the other kids in my class. And when I got to college, it was shocking to me to hear from my college roommates who went to these nice public school systems or private school systems that the cool kids got good grades and were president of student council. In my hometown, it was very much frowned upon uh, to get good grades. People would make fun of you. They would tease you. I have a vivid memory of, you know, this kid uh, uh, who was, you know, he was kind of one of the cool kids. Um, and I, I, he shouted at me one time, like, just go to Harvard already and leave us all alone. 
Um, so I guess what I'm trying to paint a picture of is, is there was a lack of interest in education all around. And there was a culture of shaming people who were interested in education. And so there was definitely a transition in the way that I saw kids that I grew up with speaking before and after the Trump years. It went from like right-leaning political apathy to this guy really understands us. He's speaking our language. And I think that a lot of it boils down to, it was generally, I would say, a, a blue collar area. We were definitely hit by the opioid ep- epidemic. And so it's so much more culturally driven around like not having a lot of mobility and not having an easy way to get out of your hometown and therefore kind of embracing the culture of your hometown, knowing that you're probably not necessarily going to leave, nor are you trying to leave. I personally grew up in a blue collar family and it was a huge struggle for me to make it to college, but I did it because I knew that that was something that I desperately wanted to do. Whereas I think a lot of the people from my graduating class, they knew that that wasn't an option for them and and they weren't really interested in it to begin with. So it was definitely um, a hometown where we didn't have really strong SAT prep classes or there wasn't a culture of the kids around us going to college or going that far away for college. It was a town that was very hard to get out of and it was easier to kind of embrace that local culture than try to change it or, or try to get out. I've never really been asked that question before, nor did I think that we were going to go back that far to my childhood. <laughs> well, what was your experience like at George Washington, which has got to be quite a difference than what you're portraying anyway? And what's the source of your interest in politics? That's a great question. I was in a heavy Italian Catholic area of New Jersey. A lot of the kids in my class went to CCD. I became familiar with what abortion was um, at some point because my mother told me what it was and she um, explained to me, I I vividly remember her saying that women during the Holocaust sometimes would have to secretly perform them to avoid being killed. I didn't really think much about abortion, but I knew what it was until one day the kids in in my class showed up with these little pins and it was a baby footprint and the pin said, let me live. And I was like, what is this? And... I had a social studies teacher at the time who, I don't know if he was interested in watching us debate or if he was just like bored and, and you know, didn't really feel like running a lesson that day. But there was a day in class where the subject came up and I started arguing for abortion in seventh grade saying, you know, this should be legal. There's times that it should be allowed. Um, and every kid in my class started arguing with me. It was like me against the rest of the class just going back and forth with each other. And for like three days, kids were jokingly calling me like baby killer. And when I, you know, stopped and and I reflected on all of it, we all moved on past it and everyone forgot about it. I was like, that was awesome. I want to do that again. I I was so invigorated um, by by pushing my narrative and my talking points and feeling like I was changing people's minds. I don't think I changed anyone's mind. I was in seventh grade, but I had so much fun and I loved it so much. That is like the first core memory that I have of having any sort of interest in politics and in persuasion and in changing people's minds. That's an unusually resilient reaction to that me against the rest of the class uh, sort of situation. What do you, I mean, is that, is that kind of you? Yes, my third grade teacher had this poster in the back of the room that said, stand up for what is right, even if you are standing alone. And I think I took it very literally and really took it to heart. But yeah, that that has 
always been me. And so at the George Washington University, I started there in 2010 and I I was a little feminist at the time, which I think now everyone wants to say, oh, I was totally a feminist back then. I showed up to GW ready to like join different women's organizations and and try to, you know, sell people on the the concept of feminism and the idea that like women are equal and deserve equality. That was considered weird at the time. So that that has been a hallmark of my life. I've always kind of taken the position that I feel is right, even if I don't see anyone around me taking that position just yet. And I see it as my my goal and my interest to to try to help convince people to believe and, and do what I think is right. And I've had varying degrees of success at that <laughs> in my personal life over the years. So George Washington was good? Yes, I loved GW and I got my degree in political communication with a minor in women's studies. Tell me a little bit about your post-college career. What's the path that takes you to Blue Labs? Yeah. When I was a senior, I was working on my honors thesis and I wound up doing an RCT to quantify change in public opinion. I wrote a couple versions of an article about a fake pregnant politician who was running for like state ledge or something like that. And I had positive framing, negative framing, no framing, and then like a control group where I just didn't mention that she was pregnant. And when the results came back, I evaluated them in like SPSS. And when I looked at my crosstabs, the light bulb went off and I was so excited to see that the different framings that I utilized actually did make a difference in how people perceived her. And I was like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. And I, at, th- at that moment, I had no idea what that even looked like or if there was anyone in the world who was doing that. But I knew that I loved it and I was going to find a way to make it happen. And that's now what I do every day, but it was a, a long journey to, to get there. Right after college, I was a field organizer for a little bit. I was accepted to get my master's degree at the School of Political Management at GW. And then I actually had some professors advise me against doing it. They were like, why study political management when you could just go do it? So I was an organizer in Georgia and Wisconsin in the 2014 cycle. And then once that wrapped, I took a job at a small digital agency that had like a two-person data team. When I was offered it, I said, look, I'm really interested in data. Can I work with your data team when they are doing something for my clients? I took a job as a junior account manager. And that was how I learned a lot of key data analysis skills like pivot tables and VLOOKUP. Um, But more importantly, I learned how to tell a story with my client's data. And so from there, that was how I was able to eventually get a job as an analyst at Blue Labs and work my way up. Tell me about Blue Labs. I had one of the founders on the show. I've been aware of, you know, they had a lot of work that they did for Hillary. You went on to Sanders. It's one of the main analytics shops or has been on the Democratic side. What was your experience there like? I joined Blue Labs the summer of 2016, and I joined the IE side. So I was not working with the the Hillary campaign directly. Um, I was working with like the labor unions and super PACs and, and so on. 
I had to learn SQL coding on the job. And that was definitely a challenge because I had never written a line of code in my entire life. They hired me on the basis that I was able to pull together a strong narrative in my simulation test. They gave me a, a data set to work with and I had to come back with you know different recommendations based on what I was seeing in the data. The entire simulation test that I did for them, I did everything out of Excel. There was not a line of code written for that, but they were evaluating me on the quality of my thoughts. So it was challenging because I had to learn a lot of technical skills really, really quickly that I didn't already have. I was able to work on a pretty solid diversity of major democratic clients within the space, obviously in like a junior capacity. Ultimately, I was able to work with a number of different labor unions, a number of different statewide campaigns, major democratic institutions. And I really got a solid variety of experiences in because Blue Labs kind of does a lot of like general analysis where you could go and approach them about any data-driven need that you have and they'll figure out, are we a good fit for you? And, and they'll try to work with you to figure out like, how can we best support what questions you're trying to answer? So I did quite a lot of reporting and path to victory analysis and working with targeting models and some degree of, of message testing and polling. So from that work, I was able to, to interact and learn from a lot of really brilliant people and also was able to kind of figure out what I wanted to do more of as I progressed in my career. So I was there for three and a half years and it was a difficult decision to leave. But the reason that I left was because I, I had an offer from the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign. I have long been a Bernie Sanders supporter and a self-identified progressive, and I knew that I would be kicking myself if I didn't jump on that opportunity and do everything that I could to try to you know, elect Senator Sanders. Did you apply to the Sanders campaign? Did, did they, were they searching around for somebody in the role? How did that happen? I knew one of the senior data staffers who joined early on. And I spoke to the national data director very early on. I spoke to the Bernie campaign pretty early on, and they you know, expressed an interest in bringing me on as like the deputy data director. And I was going back and forth on it because my career at Blue Labs was going really well. I loved my team. I felt like I was doing good work. I had a lot of trust. And it was going to take a lot to get me to leave Blue Labs at that point. And then uh, simultaneously, the Bernie campaign was kind of going through a moment where they couldn't hire national staff. They could only hire state staff. And so one day I got a text from Jeremy Meadow, the, the national data, data director, saying, hey, I'm so sorry, but like we literally cannot hire any national staff right now. We tried to figure out a way to make it work. It's just not going to happen. And I think sometimes you don't know what you want until it's like taken away from you. But when I saw that text, I had to go to the bathroom and cry. I didn't realize how I felt about it until I was told that I couldn't do it. And so I said, okay, like, then that's it. I will move on past this emotionally. It's fine. A couple months later, I get a text saying, hey, like we are starting to do a little bit more hiring. We're hiring for a data manager. It's like the last senior-esque position that we're going to be hiring onto the data team for a long time. I don't know if you're interested, but like, would you be willing to talk to us? And so I met with a couple of staffers and did an interview. And I knew that the data manager position that they were hiring for, I wasn't going to take it. It wasn't what I was looking to do. It wasn't, you know, a particularly senior role, but I was so excited to talk to them and I wanted to tell them everything that I knew. And the interview almost became like 
me telling them what I thought and giving advice based on what I had learned because I really wanted them to succeed. Obviously a very adept way actually of handling the interview. Yeah. And so I, I, I thought that was going to be the end of it. And then I got a call from Jeremy saying like, okay, what do you want? Like, just, just tell us what you want and we'll, we'll find a way to make it work. And so I said, okay, well then I would like to be your deputy analytics director. I, I know that you already have a lot covered on field, but you're telling me that you have this gap in support for like the broader comms team, video team, media outreach, mail. That's what I want to focus on. And so I, I shot for the stars and I told them exactly what it was going to take to get me. And then lo and behold, they, they came through. And that was how I wound up joining the Bernie 2020 campaign. And did it work out to be what you wanted it to be? Yes, 100%. Yeah. So tell me like some of the things you got to do. I wound up serving as kind of a, a liaison between the data team and some of the other teams that weren't organizing. The data team up to that point, the Bernie campaign had a huge organizing operation that required a ton of support from the data staff, probably maybe more than, than folks even originally anticipated. And so I wound up really kind of collaborating with a number of other teams, consultants, our male consultants, some of our polling and, and analytics consultants, our comms team, our, our video teams, our digital teams to try to make sure that we were informing each other and we were talking to each other and we were using like data-driven strategies to inform what the rest of the campaign was doing outside of the organizing department. There were a couple of, of different mantles that I took up, some of them successfully, some of them not successfully. But one of the things that I am very proud of that I, I was able to kind of successfully push for early on before we got to Iowa, we were seeing consistently both in our internal metrics and also external polling that the thing that Democratic primary voters cared about more than anything else that cycle was defeating Trump. Maybe people had their opinions on Medicare for all, Green New Deal, whatever, but all they really cared about was, can we get Trump out of office? And they were telling us, I don't care about the policy. I'm going to vote for the person who I think can defeat Trump. And the Bernie campaign up to that point in time hadn't really been like emphasizing our electability. And so I wound up kind of pooling together like a covert team of representatives from the comms team, from the video team, from the organizing team, from all from the digital team, from all different departments to come together and sort of collectively pitch to the campaign that we needed to start talking about our electability in Iowa. We were pretty successful at that. And we did make that pivot. And I remember hearing on CNN one of the anchors saying, that one of Bernie's success stories this cycle was his ability to frame himself as the electable candidate who could beat Trump. And that was when I felt like it had come full circle and like we had been successful in, in our efforts to kind of reframe ourselves a little bit and focus a little bit more on an element of the campaign that was so popular outside of just like our economic policies, our healthcare policies, and so on and so forth. Out of curiosity, do you think he was an electable candidate against Trump? I mean, no one can run that experiment. And I can see very strong arguments for why he would have been. And I can also see some very strong arguments for why he may well not have been. That was a bone of such contention in almost any sphere of politics. Yeah. There were some things that I was a little bit ignorant to at the time. The main thing that I didn't fully appreciate at that moment in time was the impact and the influence of the mainstream media on 
are Democratic primary outcomes. I knew that Democratic primary voters tended to skew older. They might watch much more TV than the Bernie base. I knew that the media was influential, but I, I underestimated just how influential it could be. And I also underestimated just how many actors in that space did not want to see Bernie Sanders win. In a world where the mainstream media, or at least portions of it, were on our side, I have no doubt that we would have been electable. But that wasn't the reality. And you could see in the change that we saw so rapidly after South Carolina, how quickly people adapted their opinions to what MSNBC and CNN and the New York Times were saying and how quickly people shifted from Bernie Sanders to Joe Biden, you could see the might of the media and its influence within a Democratic primary. The media and a lot of opinion leaders in the Democratic Party, yeah. It was pretty remarkable how that people congealed in that way, and for better or worse, Biden did end up winning. Clearly, you got really excited to be working for Sanders on data and being that liaison for someone who doesn't do that kind of work. What was so exciting to you about that role and what what keeps attracting you to this kind of work before and after? I have always been excited about and kind of obsessed with the idea of persuasion and changing people's minds. Sometimes, because I just think it's interesting to understand from a psychological perspective how people think about things, but more often than not, because I want to figure out how to get them to agree with me. Because I naturally, like everyone in this space, you know, I believe that my, my framework for how the world should work, um, you know, is, is the, the, the one that we should be pursuing. And obviously, you know, over the years, I've, I've been humbled a lot and, you know, I've had to kind of face the music of what's going to be practical and what's not. So there's that, but connect that to the data. I'm just guessing here, but like you can see revealed in the data what works and what doesn't work. Is it that simple? Yes. So originally when I was in college, I studied political communication because I looked around trying to figure out an answer for myself, who has the power to influence the decision makers. And I viewed the decision makers as voters and I viewed the people influencing the decision makers as comms people and, and journalists. And so that's originally the, the career path that I was pursuing because I didn't know what big data was. I didn't know what an RCT was, a randomized control trial. And when I discovered that, that was when I learned that if I really want to be good at this, I can't just guess or shoot from the hip um, and make assumptions about what was going to be persuasive to voters. I had to actually measure it. And the reason why that's so important is because for those of us who are are functioning as democratic operatives, we think very differently from the average voter. And our ideas about how the world should work and what's persuasive to us is so fundamentally different from people from my hometown or people who are swing voters in the suburbs of Milwaukee. The reason that I, I was so interested in the data element of it is because it allowed me to prove whether or not I'm correct. It allowed me to test my hypotheses. And let me tell you, I've been wrong many, many times. And it's it's exciting to, to prove yourself wrong and to figure out, oh, this is actually the correct way to go about this. Can you give me an example 
whether you generated or someone else did, of something where, you know, there was a message being proposed. It made sense to you. It made sense to the people proposing it. But when you tried it, it turned out on testing to be wildly wrong. Yes. One example that comes to mind is actually how we respond to critical race theory as a concept. Um, The broader democratic community has kind of tried a number of different angles to responding to critical race theory. We've tried, you know, saying this is not something that actually exists. It's something that Republicans are making up and it doesn't actually matter and, and you shouldn't worry about it. That doesn't work. We've tried kind of telling a Aaron Sorkinian style story of like, you know, this is what these people have had to go through throughout our history. If, you know, this demographic was was strong enough to go through this and persevere, our kids are strong enough to, to learn about it in our schools. That doesn't work either. What actually worked was talking about it from a common sense perspective, pushing back on Republicans from a framework of of course, we're going to teach kids American history, the good and the bad. Why would we not teach American students about American history? And you know who kind of adapted that narrative was uh, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. When he was talking about critical race theory, he was using that exact framework, trying to say, you know, we're going to teach kids the truth about American history, the good and the bad. But he was kind of leveraging that talking point to his advantage. Glenn Youngkin did a good job of speaking about critical race theory like it was common sense. And what we have found is that when we frame our position in terms of common sense, that is the most effective way to go about it. We've generally found that that validates across a number of different topics and also transcends topics. When we frame Democrats as the party of common sense, it's quite effective. That's one example that that comes to mind of the different ways that the the Democratic actors' initial responses were so ineffective compared to what we found when we actually tried to test uh, different approaches. And that turns out to be really crucial. And it's sort of a theme throughout what you've been saying from the beginning of this interview, that sometimes it matters how you convey something and what the framing is. And, And the responses back when you were a student trying to do a senior project, started to teach you that and that not everybody knows that there's professionals in our politics who work on this pretty hard. How did it feel when the Sanders campaign didn't make it, when it kind of fell apart and Biden sort of nabbed the nomination? And then what was your next move? Yeah, I am a Democrat and my interest has always been in improving the material conditions of the working class. There was no question in my mind after the Bernie campaign ended that I was going to do everything that I could to support Biden and Democrats up and down the ticket. I took a role as a data director for a super PAC called Win Justice, which was a partnership between Planned Parenthood, SEIU, Color of Change, and Community Change Action. I did that through the general election. And then in that capacity, I was essentially like in-kinded to the new Georgia project for the 2021 Senate runoffs. I was in that role through the spring of 2021. And then that was when I made the transition over to Blue Rose. I don't know a lot about Blue Rose. I understood it to come out of Open Labs. Can you tell me what is Open Labs? What is Blue Rose? What are they up to? Who are the leaders there? What's the basics about the place you work? 
Yeah. Open Labs is kind of like the parent institution of Blue Rose. So all of the, the analytics tooling that folks at Open Labs use is powered by Blue Rose data scientists and engineers. Blue Rose is essentially a team within Open Labs that is designed to be more public facing and to take on various clients, whereas Open Labs itself is a little bit more focused on like higher level projects. So um, Aaron Strauss, who I believe has also been on this podcast, he is uh, at Open Labs. Yeah, I go back with Aaron to when he was in college, actually. Yeah. So Blue Rose Research, the team within Open Labs, is almost two years old, with the bulk of our leadership coming from past democratic analytics roles. And we specialize in quantifying public opinion, both measuring it and also studying how to change it. And our analytics infrastructure that we use is really designed for and tailored to the political industry. We don't work with commercial clients. So most of us have been doing this work for a while in other roles. And after many years of being asked the same questions by clients, when we ran these different you know, messaging and content tests for them, we wanted to develop an infrastructure that would allow us to answer the questions that we get asked all the time, which largely sounds something like, okay, I get that this ad is good compared to the other ads that we tested, but how good is it compared to what we could have done, what we didn't test? How good is this ad in general? And so in terms of what that looks like in practice, we now have a national message testing library with, I think, 2,000 messages tested over the last year that are very clearly rank-ordered and percentiled so that you can very clearly see where a message falls, not simply within a test of 10, but how does that message compare to like 2,000 other messages? What is a message? Is it a paragraph? Is it a sentence? Is it video? What's in the library? Yeah. So the, the public-facing national message testing library is about 2,000 individual messages. And a message in this context is about 50 to 80 words where we say, Democrats say you should support this candidate because. And then we give about two sentences explaining why you should vote for this Democrat. And we're evaluating it on vote choice. So we have this very clear rank ordering saying these are the best messages at moving vote choice towards Democrats. And these are the weakest messages Actually, our weakest messages cause backlash and push people away from the Democratic Party. And so that is what I'm referring to regarding the National Message Testing Library. And so how are they tested? Tell me the process for testing a message. Yeah, it's a great question. We conduct all of our surveys online. So everyone takes our surveys through either their phone or their computer or their iPad. And we start with a series of demographic and sociocultural questions that we found are predictive of vote choice and, and partisanship. And we ask a pretty robust set of questions up front to understand who this person is and how we can kind of place them within the broader electorate. Then we shift to an RCT-style setup or a randomized control trial, which is where a random subset of voters see a treatment. That treatment is either a written message or it's a video or it's a static image. And then another randomized group uh, get put in the control group where they don't receive any content at all. And then after that step, we ask our outcome metric question, which is usually vote choice. Who are you voting for, Democrat or Republican? But then from there, once we've locked in your response to that, we shift to a second methodology where we actually collect more information about people's reactions to content that they did not see in the RCT step. 
And that allows us to get an even deeper read on people's reactions to these different pieces of content because RCTs do tend to be quite noisy. So that is a high-level overview of our methodology and our setup and how our testing works. And what's your role? I am a research lead. So right now, I'm managing our research operation, which essentially means uh, we are the client-facing folks. All of our researchers are themselves data analysts, but we have people who are specifically data scientists and people who are specifically engineers. Our research team are the folks who are translating all of this work for our clients, whether they be campaigns or super PACs or you know C3s, C4s. So we kind of are the middlemen between our technical teams and our clients. Another former guest of my show, David Shore, I think is also there. What does he do? David is our head of data science. So while he's not like the managing director of our technical operation, he kind of oversees and approves of the bulk of our data science methodology. Who are your clients? A number of different campaigns up and down the ballot, statewide campaigns, state ledge campaigns, attorney generals, statewide judges, things of that nature, ballot initiatives, C4s, some C3s, super PACs, major democratic institutions, and a couple of international clients as well. There's a number of message testing organizations on the progressive side. Are you aware of them? Who do you see as competition? Yeah, definitely aware of a number of different institutions who offer this type of testing. My personal goal has always been to help Democrats win. So if you are helping people improve their content, you're my ally, not my competition. Some shops have certain specialties. Um, You know, some shops are a little bit more focused on offering like targeting models on top of the testing that they do. Others have a more automated process where you can just upload your videos and get them tested very quickly. Whereas right now we're still in the process of doing that style of automation. My goal is just to be as useful as possible and as collaborative as possible. So I'm excited to hear that people are are doing testing at all, even if it's not with us. How do you think you distinguish your work from the work of those other firms? We've really worked to develop a research apparatus that is relatively cheap and that makes it easy to do iterative testing and that makes the testing that we've already done directly comparable so that we can answer a lot of these questions for our clients without them having to spend more money. And that's where the the library that I referenced comes in. You know, earlier today, I was asked about this one particular issue and you know, what are my thoughts on potentially running a test on this issue to see if it's persuasive? And I was able to say, hey, look, we've already done that testing and we know that it's persuasive. I take that point, but I, it makes me wonder how confident you can be that, some, a, that a message that's tested a year ago or two years ago, the test would come out the same way. Because I doubt that that's true in all cases. I think the kind of the political context now is going to be different than then, and and it's going to affect certainly certain kinds of messages. Yeah, not every message is an evergreen message. What we have generally found when we repeat tests over time is that when there was some sort of like radical change in the environment, so for example, Roe versus Wade, or like a mass shooting, there are some messages that are older that we won't compare to anymore. We'll kind of remove them from our points of comparison because we don't think that they're safe to compare to anymore. But when something has not dramatically changed, the treatment effects for that particular message don't really vary dramatically. 
so yeah, we are very cognizant of that and we will not compare everything to everything. We're very intentional about what we think is and isn't safe to, to do a comparison to. But I would say in aggregate, it's been much more helpful than not to be able to do those comparisons, even though we know that there are flaws and that it's imperfect. It has been a lot more useful to be able to try to answer that question than to say, you know, we can't answer this question because it's not 100% academically rigorous to compare something from six months ago to something today. Do you test the messages of the opponents of the Republicans? Yes, we do. And that is actually a fundamental part of like my core recommendations to the different clients that I work with. Testing the other side's messages is crucial and should be part of your decision-making very early on. Um, And this is based on some situations that I found myself in this cycle. And also, there have been some broader debates within the community about content decision-making. You know, you can create an ad that references or focuses on a subject that is challenging for Democrats, like immigration, and find that that piece of content produces a positive treatment effect. Um, That's actually quite normal for for that to happen. You might have a message or an ad on guns that has a net positive effect in a survey environment, especially if your ad is like successfully tugging at the heartstrings. But how does that compare to the other side's messages on guns in the relevant geography that you care about? Voters don't learn about your positions in a vacuum, and not all of them are going to see your ad with your exact language. So maybe that one ad on guns did well, but if we raise the salience of the gun debate, do we have the winning narrative overall in that geography, or does the other side have the winning narrative? And so I get the desire to be like, you know, huzzah, this ad had a positive treatment effect and therefore we should use it and we shouldn't worry about, you know, talking about this issue. But the biggest thing that I've learned is that even if an ad tests well, if that ad raises the salience of a subject that's weak for us in an earned media environment, if the other side responds with a better message that cuts into your effect. I don't want to undercut the importance of testing and I'm not saying to like never play on the Republicans turf. But ad testing is like one important data point in a broader series of data-informed strategic considerations about what to focus on. So it shouldn't be an afterthought to test the other side's messages. I think it, it should be a core component of your communication strategy. If messaging is so much more, as you're just discussing, than one ad at one time, it really is the duration of a campaign, the many actors the many messages paid and earned and just endemic to the political atmosphere. Are we anywhere near analytically thinking about the campaign holistically from a messaging standpoint? What, how do you think about that whole thing? Because like sometimes I've thought we're getting really good at the tactical. How are we at the strategic? How are we at the big questions? Sometimes you see a very good politician who seems to transcend all of these minor message tweaks and articulate something in a different way on a number of issues and makes big strategic changes and runs their campaign in a different way that that harkens to their own personality and their own beliefs. How do you think about that when you're in the weeds on the specific and the tactical? How does that fit in with the big picture? 
That's a great question. So oftentimes when people think about the concept of like message testing or content testing, they're thinking in terms of these like one word changes, powerful versus strong, or there are things that are semantically very similar, but it's just one word. Or even the stuff that we were talking about with race and like different ways, is it common sense? That's only one dimension of many dimensions in which the Virginia governor's race was being fought, right? Exactly. And I'm not in any way dismissive of the importance of thinking through which term is better. You know, should we be saying common sense Democrat or should we be saying MAGA Republican versus extremist Republican? These one word qualifiers are super important. But one of the things that we've been really trying to push different campaigns and and clients and, and folks in the space on is thinking about the higher level narrative of what you were saying. So rather than this word or this word, it's this concept or this concept, this policy or this policy, this narrative versus this narrative. How are you talking about yourself? What is your core platform? But moreover, why is that your core platform? And then in the reverse, thinking about your opponent, who are they? What do they believe in? And why do they believe that? We often have different folks who come to us and they know that we do testing and they say, hey, we developed these two pieces of content. We just need to know which is better. Can you test it for us and figure it out? And we'll say, okay. And we, we test it and we say, hey, like video A did better than video B. I like to be a strategic thought partner from early on in the process so that the first thing we do is say, okay, in your relevant geography, let's just do a landscape analysis to figure out what are the most salient issues to voters in this area and how does that change by demographic? And then come up with different kinds of content for those different issues that we know matter the most to voters and also to the candidate at play. And then also test a series of the other side's messages so that we can figure out what are their strongest attacks against our candidate and what falls flat. We might find that if we test an ad on guns and we test an ad on healthcare, both of them might be good. But in all of the different Republican messages that we tested, we might find that their attacks on our positions on gun safety are really effective, but their attacks on our healthcare position fall flat. We want to know that as we're deciding between the gun ad and the healthcare ad. So what I've really been encouraging is bringing in analysts to do this type of landscape analysis more holistically from the beginning, rather than just testing, you know, this message versus this message, this word versus this word, this ad versus this ad. The sooner you kind of loop content testing into the mix, the more holistic your campaign strategy can become and the more believable your narrative is. Because what I've seen firsthand is that campaigns often contradict themselves in how they talk about their Republican opponent. You might be saying that out of one side of your mouth that, you know, this Republican is super powerful and they're super corrupt and they're doing all of these terrible things that are hurting voters. But then the next day you're turning around and saying that, you know, this Republican is totally inept and incompetent. Which is it? Are they super powerful or are they super inept and incompetent? I think we see that out of both sides. And they seem, certainly the Republicans seem to feel comfortable saying both things about our leaders. I guess we probably do that too. Yeah. And what we've found is that, you know, Republican messaging isn't infallible. And they made a lot of mistakes this cycle. They elevated some issues that ultimately probably weren't that smart of them. It's easy to sometimes feel like Republicans are doing everything correctly, and I don't want to like publicly give advice on what Republicans should be doing um, if, if they were being smarter about it. Um, but yeah, no, Republicans, they have often been better at messaging discipline than we have been. But 
I, I think abortion has been a great example of an issue where we were the ones that exercised messaging discipline and we got them to put their foot in their mouth repeatedly over the course of the cycle. And it, it paid off for us. How does Blue Rose fit in with other consultants? If you're running a big campaign, a statewide campaign, you typically would have a pollster. They have some responsibility for message and message testing. Your media consultant would, maybe your digital strategy people. How does Blue Rose fit into that environment now? Because we don't offer every single type of analytics service that one could offer, we almost always have collaborative relationships with other consultants in the space. And that's what we prefer. It has been a pet peeve of mine when data departments have been siloed within campaigns and they're not talking to the comms department or the video department or digital department. As a consultant myself, I don't want to be siloed, only talking to one person or, or one point of contact and only having you know one or two people in a broader organization that are listening to or implementing our recommendations. Our work is stronger and more powerful when we're part of a testing cycle where consultants or organizers or folks on the ground are able to come to us with ideas on what we should be testing, and then we can go and help demonstrate whether or not their idea is effective. If it's just us doing this testing in isolation with you know one or two points of contact, I don't think that that's as powerful or effective of an operation as it would be if we were able to have a more collaborative and interactive relationship with different stakeholders and, and people who are coming from different areas of expertise and different backgrounds. To give an example of that, in Florida, we were working with the Florida Democratic Party, and they opened the doors for folks on the ground in their county parties and statewide Democrats to send over some suggestions for messages that we should test in Florida. And it turns out that a couple of the recommendations that were sent to us by folks on the ground in Florida were really effective because they understand their communities. And so we were able to combine our expertises to find something really powerful that neither one of us would have been able to do without the other. So I would say that my hope is that people who have worked with us perceive us as collaborative. That's definitely our intention and our goal. And I think it only enhances the work that we do. The common lament that I hear is Democrats don't have their act together on messaging. In the last, the 2022 cycle, before we had the results, you know, people would say to me, oh, we're all over the place. There's no central thought in the Democratic Party. Nobody's propagandist in chief. We don't have message discipline. That's died off a little with the kind of draw that we came to in the election, which surprised people. But from the inside view on this, do you think the party is doing a decent job in messaging, in coordinating messaging? What might make it better? Yeah. Well, looking at you know 2022 as a recent example, specifically the, the Senate campaigns this cycle, something that we looked at, that we were able to look at because of the volume of testing data that we were sitting on is what TV topics Senate Democrats were actually focusing on. Because there was a little bit of a debate at the end of the campaigns. Are we focusing too much on abortion? Are we overplaying our hand on abortion? 
And what we found when all was said and done is that the Democratic Senate candidates actually did quite a good job, at least in their TV ads, of keeping the focus on the economy. Yes, abortion was a factor, and they did consistently reference abortion and use that as a proof point for their candidacies. But ultimately, Democratic candidates in the Senate did a pretty good job of keeping their focus on those kitchen table issues. And so if we're just using this cycle as an example, I would say that I was actually very impressed with and pleased by the amount of messaging discipline that these candidates exercise. Abortion is another great example. There are a number of different ways to talk about abortion. And while it is uh, by default uh, a policy area that is strong for Democrats, there are ways to speak about abortion that are off-putting to Trump voters and older voters. And the Democratic candidates up and down the ballot did a really good job of emphasizing those key talking points that This is a decision that should be left up to people, not politicians. Politicians shouldn't be interfering in these very personal decisions. And Republicans have taken this so far that they are refusing to make exceptions for rape or incest or protecting the life of the mother. We do not always exercise messaging discipline at that level, but we did this cycle and we did on that issue. From my vantage point, things are are improving dramatically. I know that my team has played a role in that, but we are certainly not the only factor there. So I think things are just improving for us and getting better. The Republicans historically have had really strong messaging discipline, but this cycle, we started to see it fall apart a little bit. I think it was the NRSC that put out a memo uh, trying to emphasize that Republicans don't want to put doctors in jail. They don't want to put women in jail. But then Republican state legislators at the local levels were saying the complete opposite. So it was a, a nice example of a time where we were really the ones who were successfully um, exercising discipline and the Republicans weren't. I think that we're on a trajectory to only get stronger at this as a party. But you're right, there's not a cohesive nucleus that's running a a propaganda machine. It is a set of disparate actors. And that's part of why I wanted to work at Blue Rose in the first place, because that is a core part of their theory of change, that it is a broader ecosystem of actors that are influencing people and influencing how voters think about the Democratic Party. And therefore, we can't just be thinking in terms of this word or this word or this ad or this ad, but we need to be thinking holistically about what we stand for as a party and how we communicate that to voters. Is there something I should have asked you that I haven't? I definitely uh, have a personal appetite to kind of express to people that moderated messaging doesn't mean moderated policy. I think that that's a big point of confusion. I think that's an important point. And I think it's one where sometimes some portions of the electorate fall prey to like, I want to, I want the candidate who says all the things that I agree with rather than says effective things and maybe will do similar work right? But it's hard to discern. You kind of want people to be transparent about what they would do in office, but you also want them to campaign effectively. What are your thoughts about that? Coming from working for Bernie Sanders, I've spent a lot of time and energy evaluating his speech patterns and the way that he frames things. And I found that a lot of his gut instincts over the years have aligned with the outcome of our testing results at a a, a high-level meta-analysis. Speaking about progressive policy 
in a way that ties these issues back to the lives of working class people is really his style. And I know that, you know, some people don't want to acknowledge that that's the case, but he's always really formulated his talking points in a way that appeals to more conservative white people in Vermont. He doesn't moderate his policy at all, as we all know, but he finds a way to tie that policy back to all of us rather than just one marginalized group, which, if you remember, is also kind of a core component of the race class narrative. Tie it back to all of us, not just one marginalized group being singled out. What I want to shout from the rooftops is that changing your messaging strategy doesn't mean compromising your positions. It just means that you're designing your outreach to be maximally persuasive. And I think that people assume that when we do this type of testing, we're asking them to change their policy positions. And instead, what we're doing is we're looking at that Venn diagram of what aligns with your values and what messaging is persuasive across the electorate. And then we look for messages that meet both criteria, and then we go out into the world and we use that. Yep. I'm a little bit curious about where you see this going for you personally. Like you were in Blue Labs, you were happy, but something took you to Sanders. What would it take for you to go to a next thing? Or are you happy for the long term where you are? What, what are you thinking about career-wise? I feel like I still have a lot to learn on the art and the science of persuasion. I don't feel that my journey is complete on that front. There's some elements of democratic analytics that like I've done it to the end of the earth and back. Um, you know, I know how to generate a, a field report. I, you know, I'm pretty comfortable with like targeting models. I've done a lot in the in the turnout space as well. But persuasion is an area where I feel like I've learned so much in the last year and a half, and yet there's still so much that I want to learn and that I want to test and that I want to see for myself. And then at some point, so much of what I've learned and what I'm doing on a day-to-day -day basis is within the electoral arena. In fact, all elements of life, persuasion is relevant. You know, every single day, every one of us is engaging in persuasion. We're trying to, you know, convince somebody to do something or to tell us something or to send us something. And I think that there are other areas of applicability in terms of persuasion. One of the things that I think a lot about is how do we persuade more people to start unionizing and, and growing the broader labor movement? Because I think that that is going to be paramount in the growing years as the Republican Party increasingly becomes more and more fascistic and willing to ignore the rules and ignore the laws. So I think that there are other areas where the art and science of persuasion are going to be really important and applicable that are not necessarily in like a direct voting electoral environment. And that's kind of a half-baked thought. And I don't know how I'm going to answer that question in a year, but that's kind of where my mind goes right now. Well, Ali, it's been enjoyable to get to know you and to learn what you're doing and what Blue Rose is up to. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I hope that this has been interesting and, and informative. Thank you so much for the opportunity. My pleasure. That was Allie Mortel. She's at bluerosesearch.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. 
Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.